Second Samuel chapter seven, please. Second Samuel chapter seven. I don't know if we can allow Connie to continue to be so disruptive in services. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter seven. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse one. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house. And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. But the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt even to this day. But have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And and you have spoke, also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears, and who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods? For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of our Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. 
now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for this passage in the life of David, and as we continue our studies in lessons we can learn from David, I pray today you'd help us to learn from this one. I pray, Father, that uh, you teach us what we need to hear. Such an important passage, Lord. I pray for help as I attempt to tackle it. I pray for the filling of your spirit. I pray, Father, that uh, only things that you once said would come forth from this pulpit, and you'd protect me from saying anything I ought not. And I pray, Father, we'd all have ears to hear today. And that, Father, if there are those who, who need to hear this in a very particular way, need to make decisions, I pray, Father, that they'd be made this day. Father, this is your time. We commit it to you. We ask your blessings in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it is Memorial Day weekend, and I, I hope that we have adequately uh, honored and thanked and recognized the men and the women who have been a part of that and served in our armed forces so admirably. And if not, let me just say again, we appreciate all of those and all of you who are here who are in that category. Those who have stood in the gap to protect us and uh, our freedoms here in America. I believe that every one of those men and women who we honor on this day uh, took an oath when they entered the service. I think that's true. And I think that oath was something like this. I think it was... Something like, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. Does that sound right, those of you who are in the service? That's correct. Amen. I knew Brother Bob would know that one. Likewise, when a man or a woman is voted into the office of the President of the United States, before they can take office, they also have to take an oath. Most of us have watched on television as we watch this Chief Justice of the Supreme Court hold out a Bible. We see the President-elect place their left hand on the Bible and raise their right hand, and they say, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Now, it's Memorial Day weekend, so you can probably understand why I would go down that road and why I would share some of those things with you, because it makes sense. It's what we're thinking about today. Our hearts and minds are on things patriotic, our country, our servicemen and women, uh, the United States of America. But you're probably struggling a little bit more as your mind is going back to what we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you're probably saying, what in the world does this have to do with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Well, what it has to do is the fact that they are all examples of covenants. Covenants. What we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a very important thing in the Bible referred to as the Davidic covenant. Uh, if, if your Bible is like mine, at the top of the chapter, it says God's covenant with David. And all of those things that we just talked about are examples of covenants. Covenant's an important word. It's an important word in the Bible. There's a, a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which I will not attempt to pronounce for you, but there's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament that is used uh, 280 times, approximately. It's translated covenant. So that word appears a lot 
in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there is a Greek word. Uh, again, I won't attempt to pronounce it for you, but it appears about 33 times. Both of those words refer to a bond or an agreement or a treaty. A uh, covenant can be between men, people. A covenant between, can be between God and men. So when the president takes the oath of office, he is making a covenant with God and with the people of this country. When a man or a woman enlists in the armed services and recites that oath that we just read a minute ago, they are entering into a covenant, an agreement, a bond with God and with the people of their country. When Beth and I got married, as I recall, we were standing somewhere right about here, very close to right about here, and we entered into a covenant with each other. If I remember correctly, I recall the pastor of the church looking at Beth and saying, Beth, will you have this man to be your husband, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and health and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? And if memory reserves me correctly, she replied, She's forgotten. She's forgotten already. She replied, I will. I will. And then the pastor turned to me and asked the same question. And I also replied, I will. It was a covenant. It's an agreement. It's a promise that we made one to another. You know, folks enter into marriage today thinking there's some kind of an escape clause. They enter into marriage today thinking that, well, you know, I'll try this out. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is an agreement. Marriage is a promise made to God and made to each other. Here in this church, we have a church covenant. It's in our membership guide. It's in our constitution. It's, it's available all over the place. If you have not seen it, we sometimes read it together, sometimes responsibly as part of our Lord's table uh, observance. It's an agreement between God and between us as church members, uh, between us and God and between us and each other, a church covenant. And when God said to David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will make you a house, it was a covenant. It was an agreement. It was a contract between himself and David. <laughs> I found a good explanation about the various covenants in the Bible. You know, there are several very important covenants, and I don't want to get real detailed about them this morning. But let me just read this, this, this fellow's explanation of it, because I think it makes it uh, fairly clear. Said this, he said, The Lord Yahweh chose to relate to his creation and his people through the establishment of covenants. God initiated five main covenants in the Old Testament. Uh, I have to stop right there and tell you that depends on what theological book you're reading. Uh, there is really no argument about these five that I'm going to mention to you, but some folks would say there are a few others that he's leaving off the list. Uh, some would say there are eight. Uh, and various numbers are out there. Uh, but God initiated five, and we would not disagree about any of these five. The first covenant was with Noah and his descendants after the flood, promising that God would not destroy the earth by water again usually referred to as the Noahic Covenant because it was with Noah. God also said he would maintain the seasons and cycles of nature as long as the earth would stand. Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 8. That, by the way, is why I don't buy into the global warming alarmism. God has already promised that he's the one who's in control of that and we are not going to be able to change his mind on that. As a sign of his covenant, he set a rainbow in the sky. This was a unilateral covenant. That is, only one party God had to keep its terms. God initiated a second unilateral covenant in which he promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. This covenant, usually referred to as the Abrahamic covenant, was concluded in a complex ritual with male circumcision as an outward sign of accepting the covenant, Genesis 15. 
God secured the Abrahamic covenant by swearing by himself, and it was first fulfilled unto Joshua. Thirdly, God initiated the Sinai covenant with the descendants of Abraham and Mount Sinai. You might find that one referred to as the Mosaic covenant. This too was a, this is a bilateral covenant. That is, the covenant could be broken if either of the parties failed to observe its terms. You can read about that in Exodus 19. And then fourthly, God established a unilateral covenant with David. That's what we're reading about here today. Asserting that he would not fail to establish a king in Israel from David's descendants. The David, Davidic covenant was ultimately fulfilled in Christ, which we'll see in just a moment. And then although Israel did not keep the Sinai covenant, God promised a new covenant. The fifth covenant, in which he would enable his people to keep his laws and his commandments by writing them upon their hearts and in their minds, Jeremiah 31. This covenant was established by the Lord Jesus Christ and is the one to which Christians commit themselves. Now that fellow used the words bilateral and unilateral to describe the different kinds of covenants. I I usually would have used the words conditional and unconditional. A conditional covenant says, if you do this, I will do this. Uh, I will keep my end of the bargain if you keep your end of the bargain. Or either one of us can break this covenant. An unconditional just simply says, I will do this. God says, I promise, I will do this. Whether you obey, whether you keep it, whether you keep your end or not. This covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, is an unconditional covenant. And it's extremely important. This is a very important passage of scripture in your Bible. You really need to understand this in order to understand much of the rest of scripture. John MacArthur in his study Bible mentions the fact that there are approximately 40 different Bible passages that directly refer back to this particular covenant. So it's a pivotal passage. And I'm not going to look at all 40 of those passages this morning, but let me just mention a few of them to you so you'll see how important this is. The prophets, for example, testified to this covenant when they testified that Messiah would come from the line of David. Jeremiah chapter 11 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 34, I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel 37, David, my servant, shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. We read Isaiah chapter 9 all the time. We read it a lot at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. All of those were references by the prophets back to the Davidic covenant, to what God had promised David here in Second Samuel chapter 7. In the New Testament, we see the angel Gabriel announcing the birth of the coming Savior. He's talking to Mary, and he made it very, very clear in his words to Mary that the child that would be born would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The angel said he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The Davidic covenant is a very important thing in scripture. From this point on, the Hebrew people, for the Hebrew people, And uh, for the later prophets, David stood as a symbol 
and, an, and the ancestor of a coming king, the coming king, destined to set up a lasting kingdom throughout which the whole world would relate to God. We cannot understand the Old Testament. We cannot understand the Bible if we do not understand that godly Jews from this moment on were looking forward to a coming Messiah and believing that they were looking for a literal king who was going to set up a literal kingdom on this earth. I want us to look at this in a couple of ways this morning. First of all, I want us to look at three important truths we need to understand if we're going to interpret this right. We want to interpret this right first. But then I want us to do what we've been doing with all of these lessons from David, and I want us to apply it a little bit. I want us to say are there are lessons that we can learn for our life from this important passage. So let's look at it those two ways, first of all. Key truths that we need to understand if we're going to interpret it right. First of all, looking at verses 12 through 15, some parts of this promise applied directly to Solomon. Some parts of the promise applied directly to Solomon. If you read verses 12 through 15 there, you'll see that he's talking about everything there definitely applied to the son that would come directly from David. And we know that to be Solomon. If we were to go over to the parallel passage in Chronicles, the same Davidic covenant is also related to us in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. If we were to go over there, we would see that it says, It shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Clearly, that part of the promise is talking about Solomon. That part of the promise is fulfilled directly in him. If you keep reading your Bible, you're going to find that at the end of David's life, Solomon was the one who did indeed ascend to the throne. There was some intrigue. There was another son or two that tried to take the throne, but God's way went out in the end. And Solomon did rise and take the throne. And so he was a fulfillment of that promise. Verse number 12 was not only fulfilled by Solomon taking the throne, but also by the fact that God so clearly established his kingdom. You see that word established in there? God not only put Solomon on the throne, he established him even more so than he did David in some ways. Solomon's kingdom surpassed David's. In some ways. And so again, there was a direct fulfillment of these prophecies. The covenant stated here that David's son would be the one to build the temple. Verse number 13. Clearly that was Solomon that's being referred to there. And we know that he did build the temple. God promised here that if David's son were to stray from the faith, chastening would follow. And if we read the stories of Solomon, we certainly know that that was the case with him as well. And so many elements of the Davidic covenant were fulfilled in Solomon. That's one thing we need to understand. But not all of them. Not all of them. The second thing we need to understand, look at verse number 16. The second thing we need to understand is some parts of the promise could not have been fulfilled by Solomon. They were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse number 16, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that little word forever is instructive, wouldn't you say? That little word forever tells us it could not possibly have been Solomon. That is being talked about there. That little word forever makes it clear that a promise reached beyond Solomon. The Davidic covenant was a promise from God that the ultimate king would come from the line of David. And if we read, and and, and we won't spend time on it this morning because we need to move along. But uh, if we were to continue to read and we were to look at David's prayer at the end here when he prayed back and thanked the Lord for all this. You'll see that David picked up on that little word forever. He mentions it over and over. It, it, it got to him. It, it amazed him forever. Verse number 19, verse 24, 25, 26, 29. He mentions the word forever. 
The Davidic covenant was not just about Solomon. It was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You remember when Jesus was getting ready to ascend back to heaven? We can read about it in Acts chapter 1. And I'll let you do that on your own sometime. He's getting ready to ascend back into heaven. Uh, He has now paid the price for your sins and mine by dying on the cross of Calvary. He has defeated death and purchased for us eternal life by resurrection, by rising from the tomb on the third day. He has spent some time with them, 40 days with the disciples. And now he's, uh, he's getting ready to ascend back into heaven, where he now sits on the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for you and for me. Acts chapter 1, he's standing there, he's getting ready to go. And, and do you remember what the disciples said to him? The disciples said to him, hey, is, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Do you remember that? See, there's, there's two things that are important for us to understand from that passage. And you can look, you can look at it in Acts chapter 1 sometime. But there's two things that are important. The first thing is that they believed that. After all they had been through, after all they had seen, it was so ingrained in their mind that the Messiah was going to be a literal earthly king that they were still asking that question. Is now the time? That is what they believed all the way. It goes all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God said to David, I will build you a house and your kingdom I'll establish forever. They believed that. But the other thing to understand is that Jesus did not rebuke them for it. There's not a word of rebuke in what Jesus said. He didn't deny it at all. As a matter of fact, his silence on the matter uh, implies that he agreed with it. He understood it perfectly. He didn't say, what are you talking about? There's no such thing. He said, it's not for you to know the times. That implies right there that he was saying, yeah, you're right. There is going to be a kingdom. It's not for you to know the time. i got things for you to do. You'd be witnesses unto me. And so the ultimate fulfillment, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant would be in Christ. And then the third thing that we need to see is that that ultimate fulfillment awaits the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Some of you are probably saying, well, wait a minute, I don't see a throne in Israel today. And no, it's not there today. It awaits the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but we've talked about it before. You know, there is a timeline of events yet to occur that I think is pretty clearly spelled out in Scripture. The very next event that is set to occur in the prophetic timeline is the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians chapter 4. The Bible says the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of an archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive shall be caught up to meet him in the air. And so will ever be with the Lord. The word rapture comes from that phrase, caught up. That's what it means, caught up. The very next thing to take place on this church is when Jesus, or on, uh, in the prophetic timeline to the church, is when Jesus comes back. We meet him in the air. He doesn't come all the way to earth that time. We meet him up there. Then after that, there is a time of tribulation that is ushered in on this earth. Seven-year period of time which uh, the church will not be here. So those of you who have trusted Christ and are saved need not worry about this. Those of you who have not better think hard about it. Because the fact is it's going to be a time, the Bible says, unlike any other. When God's wrath is poured out upon this earth, judgment and tribulation for seven years, unbelievable. There will be almost no earth left at the end of that seven years. And at the end of that seven years, Jesus Christ will return this time to the earth, to Jerusalem, to the land of Israel. And he will defeat the armies of the Antichrist, cast the Antichrist into hell, and establish a real kingdom. Referred to, usually, as the millennial reign. Because in Revelation chapter 20, it talks about the fact that he will establish a 1,000 year reign of peace. 1,000 years in his millennial. 
And so as Warren Wiersbe would say, it is our conviction that Christ will fulfill this Davidic covenant when he sits on David's throne and rules during the millennial kingdom. It is then that all the great kingdom prophecies and promises in the Old Testament prophets will be fulfilled. So this might seem a bit tedious, but it's important for us to understand this. I wanted to lay this groundwork because we can't understand or interpret the Davidic covenant right unless we understand those three truths. Some parts of it were fulfilled in Solomon. Some parts of it could not have been fulfilled in Solomon. They, they have their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even those parts have their ultimate fulfillment in the millennium when Jesus comes back and reigns as king. And so now I can, I can see the glazed over eyes in the room, and I can tell that some of you are sitting there saying, as uh, Brother Phil said in his Sunday school class, so what? What does this mean to me? This whole series of studies in the life of David has been about taking these events and applying them to our lives in a practical way. And so we ask ourselves, what does all this mean? What practical lessons can I learn from this passage and from what took place here? And, and let, me just, let me just share a few. I think I have four here I'll just mention because we're about out of time. But I want us to think about a few things here that might be practical that would help us. should think about what took place in the life of David here. Look with me again at verse number one. It came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. The first practical lesson I would suggest is this. At times of peace and at times of prosperity, we ought not to forget God. Think about where we are now in the history of David. David has spent years of his life running from Saul through the wilderness. He has been in battle after battle after battle. He has had anything but peace for many, many years of his life. And then when finally he ascended to the throne, he only ascended to the throne in Hebron. He only ruled over the southern tribes. And then finally he, had to, he got the opportunity to unite the tribes. He finally defeated the city of Jerusalem, which had never been defeated, and finally established his kingdom there in the city of David. All this has taken years of struggle. And now he is at peace. He is at rest. He is in his home, his palace that has been built for him. And here we see that David, even now at this time, at rest, his heart was after the things of God. His heart was stirred for God's house. At times of peace and prosperity, we ought not forget. And I say that's a practical lesson that we need to learn because, frankly, most of us don't do that very well. Most of us will seek after God when things are rough, when we're going through a hard thing. But it's so easy for us to forget him when things get good, when his blessings begin to flow. Oh, David had such a heart for God that even in his house, even in the time of peace and prosperity, where was his mind mostly? Was he looking around and saying, look at this great, wonderful palace I live in? No, he was saying, God, I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about your name. I'm concerned about your house. I have a preacher friend who years ago, I remember sitting talking with him, and we were talking about some people in our church who were in the process of building or buying a new house. I can't remember which it was. They were getting, a, they were getting another home, Move, moving up, if you will, uh, in their, in their accommodations. And I was saying how wonderful it was. It was nice that these people were being blessed. And this pastor friend looked at me. He, he was an elderly man. He'd been in a ministry for a while. And he looked at me and he said, uh, I always hate to see that. And I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, I always hate to see that. Because in my experience, what usually happens is when people get to a place where God is blessing, they drift away from God. 
And I poo-pooed him, and I said, ah, you're crazy, you're nuts, you don't know what you're talking about. But, now I'm an old man, and the fact is I've seen it to be true. Not always, but often. And I think David here demonstrates for us the heart for God that he showed at so many other points in his life that he could even look around at a time of blessing and say, God, I care about you. You're the most important thing to me. So lesson one, at times of peace and prosperity, we ought not to forget God. Lesson number two, ambition for God and for his honor and for his glory is a good thing. Look at verse number five. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house? Now therefore, think about that word, therefore, now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. And he goes on and he makes this promise. You know, I've read this many, many times in my life. And uh, I've always interpreted this one particular way. I've always interpreted this that God was criticizing David. That God was saying to David, what, what are you talking about? What are you thinking about? I never asked anybody to build me a house. Why, why is this in your heart? Why are you thinking this? And that's the way I've always thought that meant. And doesn't it kind of read that way? But as I studied it, I realized there's another way. And I think the right way. To interpret it. I think God was saying to David, you know, of all the people who have ever lived, all the people who have ever sat where you sit, all the people who have ever been in the role of leader amongst my people, not a single one of them has cared about my house. Until you. And I think that word therefore is the key. He promised these things to David because of that heart that David had. David had an ambition for God, for his honor, for his glory, unlike anybody else. He's called the man after God's own heart, and I think that's why. Many of us are ambitious. Ambitious for careers, ambitious for family and friends, ambitious over our hobbies and our playtime, our recreation. But how many of us are as ambitious for God as David was? Number three, when God blesses. We ought to respond as David did here. And I'm not going to read this. You go ahead and look at it on your own. Study out his response in verses 18 and following. And if you do, you're going to see that David responded with worship, with praise, with prayer, with humility. You'll see that he referred to himself as your servant ten times in that prayer. You'll see that he referred to God as Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, seven times. If you look at verse number 9, you'll see God's promise was to make David's name great. And then you go look at David's prayer. He never mentions that. He mentions the fact that God's name is great. He cares about God's name and God's glory. So when God blesses, we ought to respond as David did. And finally, number 4. And I suppose this is the ultimate application. The most important lesson. We need to remember that Jesus is the coming king. And we need to live in light of that promise. That covenant. Jesus is the coming king. You know, for us evangelicals living in 21st century America, that's the thing that matters most as we read this. The throne of David is a reminder to us that Jesus is coming. He is the king. And he is coming. Again, marvelous message we bring. Glorious carol we sing. Wonderful word of the king. Jesus is coming again. Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon.
Oh, what a wonderful day it will be. Jesus is coming again. God said, I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness and I will not lie to David that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Andre Crouch saying, soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Soon. Very soon. And so the ultimate application, the ultimate question today is, are you living so as to be ready to meet him on that day?